I bring you greetings from Community of Faith Bible Church, brothers. And uh, he won't fail us. Amen. Amen. I heard someone say once that the most useless stat in sports is the halftime score. So I don't know what situation you came here today. I don't know if you're encouraged or discouraged or going through a trial or in a trial or just came out of a trial. But I do know this, that Jesus will not fail you. Um, but I also know this, that he uses means, and we're those means, that Christ is going to win. I cheated. I read the end of the book. So I know the final score. But I also read the beginning of the book, too. And he's chosen to use us. And he's chosen to use us in our troubled homes. He's chosen to use us, us in our broken communities. He's chosen to use us in our dividing churches. That if when God made men, he made leaders. That's just who we are, and that's what we are. And in this world that we live in now, with all the brokenness and all the hurt, perhaps you've carried some of that with you. And I'm glad there are brothers beside you that can empathize with you, that can pray with you, that can encourage you this week. And I'm glad that we have this word. I'm glad that we have this word that we can go to and that we can open up and that we can lean into. And what I want to do today, I've spoken at a lot of men's conferences, a lot of men's retreats. But I want to do something pretty different. I, I want to talk about an essential quality in leadership that I personally don't think I've ever heard really pressed at a men's retreat. That, it, that when I think of leadership, I think of courage, I think of determination and, and grit, I think of wisdom, I think of a lot of attributes. But if I read my Bible carefully, and when I think about the essential, most important aspect of leadership, my mind keeps going back to one word, and that word is love. And tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, I want to press into us a little bit. I want to ask what your love life looks like. And I want to give you a lot of encouragement. I want to go to the word of God so that we can have an experience with God this weekend, the God who loves us, and find ourselves loving better and loving more so that when we go back down this mountain, into homes, into marriages that are strained, into relationships with kids that are strained, into churches that are fighting over everything. If it ain't masking and not masking, if it's not politics, if it's not whatever social issue is driving a particular part of the congregation, I've seen so many churches split in the past three years. And the central thing that leaders need to bring to these conflicts, to bring to these troubles, to bring back into our homes, into our churches. We need love. Paul says it at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, that is simply the most important thing. He's not even comparing it to the other attributes, faith and hope, and he's saying that if there's a list of all the things we bring to the table as leaders, at the top, the most important, the essential attribute that leaders must have and demonstrate, that attribute is love. And tonight what I want to do, I'm going to survey the Old Testament a little bit and then jump into the New Testament. And I want us to answer a simple question. I want to talk about why we need God's love. Why we need it so desperately. Why we need it right now. 
I want to press into that, but I want to pray first. Amen. You bowed me, God. You are here. And we are in your presence because of what our Lord Jesus has done. Lord, he's torn the curtain. He's clothed our shame with his righteousness so that we can boldly be in this place and receive from you blessings that you have secured for us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you bless every man, every man under the sound of my voice, every man who's still traveling up here. I pray that we would find ourselves experiencing you fuller in a more full way, having sacrificed this weekend as an offering of worship to you. Meet us and bless us and keep us and help us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So I invite you to turn on your Bible or turn to your Bible to the very first page in the book of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we, we meet the main character of the Bible. He's mentioned 32 times in Genesis chapter 1. And the main character of the Bible is God. And in verse 1 of your Bible, we, we find out from God that he is different than everything else in, every, in all of creation. That, that God, the God of the Bible, is not like any other so-called deity. He's not like the ancient Mesopotamian deities that were worshipped at this time. He's not in his creation. He's not a part of his creation. He's not a, a God struggling with other gods in his creation. The God of the Bible stands over and above and exalted over every aspect of his creation. The furthest star in the galaxy owns his existence to God. He holds it in place. The Bible says in the beginning, before anything was, there was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. That if we have big problems, we need to look up to the heavens and see that we have a bigger God than every single problem that we brought up, to, up this mountain with. We need to walk outside and we need to this, this, this sing, to looking to the stars and looking to the cosmos and know that our God is bigger and he's stronger and he's able. There's nothing too hard for God. We have a big God. And what that big God did is he made us. In his image, in his likeness, and it says in verse 26, that God made us in his image and likeness, and the text says, so that. And I would read it that way. I'd translate it, that God made man in his image according to his likeness, so that we would rule. And then verse 28 says, that God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. That out of everything that God made, there is nothing like you. That God made us in his image to represent him. He made us like him so that we can do what God does. We're finite. We're not gods. But being humans, God made us over and above everything in us in his creation like him so that we could rule it. And then chapter 2 presses into the details of day 6 and tells us when God made us in his image and his likeness, it says he made Adam first. It says that in chapter 2, verse 7, God made Adam. And then it says in verse 15, God placed him in the Garden of Eden, listen, to work it and to watch it, my Christian Standard Version says. But I think the NASB and the New American Standard and the other translations would catch the idea a little bit better. He placed us in it to keep it or to guard it. But God made everything very good. But everything wouldn't necessarily stay everything, stay very good, because the text says that there's a tree in the garden that they couldn't eat from. And if they ate from it, it says 
death could come into creation. And, when I, and they, that they hear, it really is just Adam. Eve wasn't made yet when God gave Adam this commandment. So in verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but, from the, but, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. And then God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And all the married brothers can say amen to that. Amen. This is not good for us to be alone. We needed a helper of necessity, not of convenience. Adam wasn't going to fill and fill and reproduce the earth without a helper. And the help didn't stop there. That God was going to make him someone like him who corresponded to him that could help him rule. To help, to help him walk with God and depend upon God. And so he was going to give him a helper that was suitable for him. But before he made Eve, he made Adam. Charged him to do and rule, keep guard the garden, or else death could come into the very good creation. God put some big shoulders on Adam and laid a responsibility on it. And Adam is responsible now. Adam is responsible for keeping this very good garden very good. And if you aren't sure about what the word keep and guard means, it repeats itself at the end of chapter 3 when Adam didn't keep the garden and he's kicked out of the garden. God puts an angel there with a sword and commands that angel to guard the garden because Adam didn't. And so when you read chapter 3, the question is, well, what in the world happened? And what happened was that God gave Adam a responsibility and Adam... Instead of listening to God, he listened to his wife, was completely deceived by the serpent, and he took the fruit from her, and he ate. And verse 17 tells us what Adam did. When God indicts all of the participants in the fall, it says in verse 17, And he said to the man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it, then the ground is cursed because of you. And I don't want to get no married brothers in trouble. I want to say that God tells Abraham to listen to the voice of his wife later on in the narrative, all right? So, so it's saying you listen to the voice of your wife because she was telling you something contrary to what I commanded you. And so when Adam ate, the text in Genesis chapter 3 tells us that what God warned him happened. He instantly started hiding from God because he was separated from God. And it doesn't sound that bad, does it? To say that he listened to the voice of his wife. All hell broke loose because of that. He just listened to the voice of his wife. Can I invite you to do a quick Bible study and, and look up what it means to listen to another voice other than God's? Turn with me, and I'm going to give you one example. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 15. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, Actually, 1 Samuel, I'm sorry. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have an account where Saul was commanded. Saul is a new king. Saul is commanded by the prophet Samuel to, to destroy all the Malachites. And some of you all know the story. This, destroy all of them and lambs and sheep included. And yet Saul decided to take the best of the sheep and to keep them. And he didn't kill King Agag. And so the text tells us that when the prophet Samuel comes and confronts Saul, and he says that I did obey, and then in verse 14, Samuel responded, then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? 
How did you obey? And I hear all these sheep. And then Samuel says in verse 16, stop. Stop rationalizing. That's exactly what Adam did. When God said, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What was Adam's classic line, everybody? God, it's your fault. It's the woman that you gave me. And here instantly, Saul begins to make excuses. Stop, but I did. And then in verse 19, so why didn't you listen to the voice of the Lord is what the prophet commands. And he says in verse 20, I did listen. And literally, the word here, obeying your translation, is the same word in Genesis 3.17. I did listen to the voice of the Lord. Saul pleads again. And then the prophet responds, Samuel, in verse 22. And this is what I want you to see. In verses 22 and 23, what does it mean that Adam didn't listen to the voice of God? Instead, he listened to the voice of his wife. Well, Samuel says it this way. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in listening to the voice of the Lord? To listen is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like the wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And here, what the word of God is telling us, and this is just trade and stock language in the Old Testament, not to listen to God and to listen to anything else is idolatry, is mutiny, is rebellion, is defiance, and that's what Adam did. Instead of listening to the God who made him in his image and likeness so he could have a relationship with God, Adam rejected that relationship. He rejected God. He disobeyed God. He rebelled against God. This is mutiny. This is defiance. And because of that, Adam reached the consequences of breaking and breaching that relationship with God who made him, who gives life. And to reject the one who gives life, you end up automatically in death. And so here we are, not living in the garden, but we live outside the garden. And if you ask the question, what happened? Genesis 3 happened, that Adam rejected God. He rebelled against God. And as a consequence, everybody born after him are born spiritually separated from God. That's what Genesis 5.3 says. Seth was made in Adam's image and likeness. And so here is a world that God made very good, life intimacy with him that has been broken because of Adam's sin, and we all now are separated from God. We're all now in a world, and now death is in it because sin is in it, and sin is spread to every person. And how bad did it get? Just read Genesis 6 and 7 and see a world that's revolting not only against God, but committing violent acts against each other, murder and rape and on and on. And so God looks at the world he once called very good and saw only evil. And so God was going to cleanse it. He prophesied through Noah. That's what Noah's name means. He's going to cleanse it, and he cleansed it through judgment. He wiped the world clean. But that didn't fix the problem. Then when you read Genesis 8, 21, it says, Our hearts still are born rebelling against God. And so here into this world, Adam was made to have a relationship with God, to rule the creation, and he rebelled and brought sin into creation. 
And where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? In a world now where there's darkness ruling and death is ruling and sin is ruling, and Satan is, according to Jesus in John 12 and John 16, the rule of this world, then where does that leave any of us? It leaves us in a state where we desperately need grace, where we desperately need mercy, where we desperately need God's love. And that's what God promises. In a world that we've ruined, God did not abandon you. He didn't abandon me. He didn't abandon us. It says in Genesis chapter 12, and turn there with me, after showing how sin is spread to all of us through the flood and at the Tower of Babel, after all of that so-called bad news, Genesis chapter 12 says this. In verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And here, if you, if, if you, if you catch kind of the overtones of what this sounds like, and where you might hear language like this before or, or today, I will, I will, I will. It has all kinds of marriage covenant overtones. They hear God is entering into a covenant with Abraham, and God promises to do what none of us could do, what Abraham couldn't do, what Isaac couldn't do, Jacob and Joseph and David that no other patriarchs and no man on this earth could do. God enters a covenant with Abraham, and he promises where there's cursing, he is going to bring blessings back. He's going to bring blessings to all of the families of the earth. And if you hear what it's saying, it's saying this. God isn't saying, we will do this. It's not like, I will, and then Abraham said, I will too. God singularly says, I will bring blessings to all of the families of the earth through you. It's almost like a covenant, but only one person is making a vow. So God takes the onus upon himself to fix everything that we have ruined. And so the person here who is trusting in this God who's blessing Abraham will be blessed right along with Abraham. The person who does not trust the God here who's blessing Abraham will be cursed by that same God. And so the hope of all of humanity hangs around this promise that God said through Abraham he would undo the curses that came about as a result of Adam's sin. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God enters a covenant relationship with Abraham, and he promises to Abraham that he will bring blessing back to all of the families of the earth. He's picturing, he's picturing a special love that he has. He didn't abandon humanity. He loved God loves sinners. Because God loves sinners, he starts it over again. He's married to now this covenant with Abraham, and the faithful God promises that he would keep this covenant promise. And then in chapter 15, he ratifies it. He goes to the ceremony where he ratifies these promises by cutting animals, and that's how you make an ancient covenant, you cut them, and you have two animals, or you have an animal, you cut it, you have two parts, 
And the parties in the covenant relationship would walk down between the two animals, covenanting as it were. If I break my part of the covenant, what's happening to these animals, what happened to me? I take the onus, the responsibility upon myself to keep this covenant promise. And when God made this covenant, and you can read Genesis 15, it says God put Abraham to sleep. And then it says in verses 17 and following, he walked through these slain animals alone. And so God pictures his relationship with us like a marriage covenant where he's the one bowing. And then he, he goes through a ceremony where he guarantees the outcome of it by walking through these slain animals alone. He, he makes or cuts a covenant with Abraham. And let me say one more thing about just our need for this love. So God is making it clear that he and he alone can pull us out of the mire of sin, our enslavement to sin, and our sentence of death. God and God alone can do that, and God has vowed to do that. But then in Genesis chapter 22, you can turn there with me. God pictures it. He pictures what he would do. It's already prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that God said that he would send another man, a better man than Adam. He would come from a woman, and he would crush the serpent's head. He would end the rebellion. He would end the darkness, this end creation. But in the process, it says that his heel would be bruised. And what in the world does that look like? And then in Genesis chapter 22, God does this. Having made this promise to Abraham, Abraham waits 25 years and finally gets a seed, finally gets a son. And then it says in Genesis 22, after that son is a teenager, it says in verse 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? God had promised that through your seed, I'm going to undo the fall. I am covenanting to do that. I'm vowing to do that. I take the onus upon myself to do that. And then Abraham waits 25 years, and there's no kid. He's 100 years old, and finally he has this son, this promised son, through whom God says that he was going to undo the curse in the fall. And so after all of that, all of those years of waiting by faith, it says God tested Abraham. Now the narrator is telling us that, that you know that this is just a test. Abraham didn't get this memo. It says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And he answered, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I tell you about. Heart stop. And what the narrator is wanting you to do, he's wanting you to watch. He's wanting you to watch what God had done with Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham didn't always walk by faith. He's the father of faith, but he struggled. There were times where he'd be in trouble and he'd pawn up his wife with those big shoulders. Instead of protecting his wife, he said, uh, tell him you're my sister so, so I can live. Not once, but he did that twice. And so Abraham has been known to lie at points to protect himself and not protect his wife. But here, after these 25 years, and after God had opened up Sarah's dead womb, you're watching Abraham respond to this final test. And this test basically isn't simply about Abraham. It's a test 
to see through Abraham, how in the world can God keep a promise through Isaac if he slays Isaac? That's the question. We, we want to make Abraham a hero in all these stories. Abraham is not a hero. Ask Sarah about that. And she'll tell you multiple times, I don't know, he ain't always a hero to me. <laughs> God is a hero of his stories, and God has been trying to teach Abraham that Abraham, when I make promises, I cannot lie. I am faithful. Build your house on this rock, and it simply will stand no matter the test, no matter the storm, no matter the trial or difficulty, build your house on my rock, and it stands. Did Abraham learn that lesson yet? And so God gives him this test. How in the world, God, are you going to bless all of the families of the earth through my seed if I take the life of that seed? And you get a front row seat to watch how God responds to that particular dilemma. And interestingly enough, when you read the text, at this point in Abraham's walk with God, it's not a dilemma to Abraham. The text says, Abraham got up early in the morning, verse 3, saddled his donkey. He took young men. He split the wood for a burnt offering. He set on his trip. He didn't take four days of praying like, oh, Lord, what do you want me to do? God has spoken. Anti-Adam, Abraham is listening. He simply got up and he went and he goes to the mountain. And then when he gets there, he tells his men, verse 5, stay here with the donkeys, and the boy and I will go over there and worship, and we both will come back. <laughs> I've seen Abraham lie before. I'm not, is he lying? I've seen him lie a couple of times. Is he lying again? Is he lying to these men simply to throw them off trail so he covers himself for what he's about to do, or has something happened in his walk with God where Abraham is now trusting that the God who opened up my wife's dead womb can fulfill his promise to bless me through Isaac if I simply listen and obey and if I trust him? Will God, God bigger than this test before me? And you read, you read the rest of the narrative. Because the son says, Dad, where's the wood in verse 7? And where's the fire? And where's the lamb? And, and he says in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked away. I, I think at this point, <laughs> and I trust that some of us with some gray hair can help our younger brothers with this. You've been through a couple of trials, haven't you? We sang the song, Did God Let You Down? I remember standing on a curb at midnight, my six kids beside me, and my nephew and niece had eight kids in my house, and my house caught on fire at midnight, and I'm running them out of the house, and we barely got out of the house, and we're out of the house, and I watched my house kind of burn down, I'm standing there, I'm like, I got like six kids, and I'm homeless, and I'm trying to, I'm calling my insurance company, and the insurance company had agreed to try to get me a house. And I'm calling people for like month-to-month leases. Would you lease your house to somebody with six kids on a month-to-month lease? Would you? Nobody else did either. So we're living in hotels, and my kids are like, they're playing in the pool. And I'm like, this is not a vacation. We are homeless. And I was freaking out. And my wife told me, like, Bobby, don't you remember when our oldest daughter at eight years old had terminal cancer? 
and God healed her. Do you remember that? And God will take care of this. And she helped me. That I had to remember my God. He's bigger than houses. <laughs> He's bigger than fires. He's bigger than cancer. And I think if you were to ask Abraham, like, go up to him with your struggle that you have right now that you brought up this mountain, whatever it is. I'm single and I can't find a wife. You know, um, COVID cost me my job. I don't know what to do with my church. They seem to go crazy and we're split over all kinds of issues. I, I don't know what questions are burdens or trials that you brought up here that you'd ask. But if you were to ask Abraham, I think he might say something like this. Son, listen. I, I, I don't know how God is going to work your situation out. I, I don't know when God is going to work your situation out. But I do know this, that you can trust him, son. That you can trust God. That he is faithful and he is able. And Abraham here is telling his son, I've learned something about God, and he provides, son. He simply provides in all of his promises. And so Abraham, he goes through with putting his son on the altar, tying him up, lifting up the knife, and is about to take the life of his son as God had commanded to him. But it was only a test. God has never wanted anyone to, to make a human sacrifice. And here the angel of the Lord breaks in and calls out to Abraham, Abraham. I think he had to say it twice. Abraham was moving. And he calls out to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And then he tells them, don't lay a hand on the boy. He tells them to stop. And then Abraham named that place. In verse 14, the Lord will provide. The Lord sees the Lord will provide and it will be provided. Now, this is future tense to him having Isaac on the offering. So, so something beyond Isaac. Abraham is looking to that God is going to provide. This is just a picture. This is a picture of a father sending a son up a hill with one on his back. But this wasn't the final script. This is a picture showing us they keep looking for this story that a father one day is going to have a son walk up a hill carrying wood because he's faithfully promised to provide. And the text concludes that way. That the text says in verse 17, God says, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. My Christian standard version says, but I think some of your translations won't say their enemies. It will say his enemy. That, and, and I think that's a better translation. So here the text is climaxing that ultimately... That God's promise to Abraham to bless all of the families of the earth through a seed is a singular seed. God is going to make him numerous, yes, but it's through a singular seed that God is going to bless all the families of the earth. And that singular seed here is prophesied in verse 27, I mean 17. And Paul picks it up into the, in the New Testament. In Galatians 3, 16, it says, God didn't say seeds he would bless through by Abraham, but just seed. And that seed is the seed in Genesis 3, 15 that God said he's going to send another man, and that seed would be bruised on the hill while he's crushing a serpent's head. And if you get bruised on the hill, what would happen? If a serpent bites you on the hill, you might be fine. Depends on what kind of serpent it is. But this is a lethal serpent in this book, that it could cost you everything. And here you have a picture that God is going to revisit. Mount Moriah comes back up in our Bible. It comes back up. This is the place in Second Chronicles 3, 1, where the temple is built, and all the animals are sacrificed. 
And this, this, is, this is going to be revisited. And yet this isn't the final sacrifice because the God who saves is a God who loves sinners. And listen, I want to jump to the New Testament. He loves so much, it says in John 3, 16, that God so loved, and how did God love? That God so loved, and it tells us he loved in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, and he didn't hold back. He gave his only begotten son. God so loved us. God so loved sinners who are hopelessly lost, hopelessly in sin, hopelessly slaves of darkness and Satan, could not free ourselves. God so loved us while we were yet sinners that he sent his only begotten son who would die in our place to set us free. And so why do we need God's special love? Because we are so lost, so helpless, so bound in sin that God promised that he himself would save us. And the picture of it is in Genesis 3, I mean, Genesis 22. And it's a picture of this marriage covenant that God made with us, that God simply is going to be faithful and is going to come through. So I wanted to show you, like, our need for the Father's love in Genesis 3 and pictures of it in this marriage motif and in the sacrifice motif of Genesis 22. And I want to give one last thing. I want to show you specifically the gift of God's love for us and his son. Turn with me to one New Testament passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I know I'm kind of theological tonight. I'll be more practical tomorrow. Let me just do this quickly. And I'm going to give you four words. I'm explaining this passage with four words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it's a classic verse. We've memorized it. But I want to encourage you that God loves you, man. So you needed his love. He's pictured it. But here, this text says that this is the gift of God's love to us. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he, being God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that he might, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And let me give you four words, and you can write them down if you're taking notes. That God's love initiates. God's love initiates says in verse 21 that he made him who knew no sin. And when you read the gospel narratives, you have to read it this way. That that God is the actor, that God is the writer, that God is the producer in the story. That, That God is the one who gave his son over. God is the one who walks him up the hill. God is the one who puts wood on his back. God does that. Jesus is not a victim of Pilate. He is not a victim of evil Roman soldiers. He's not a victim of jealous Jewish leaders. That behind the drama that you see in Jerusalem, you see the God who made us, rescuing us volitionally, intentionally. He initiates by sending his own son to the cross. God does that. There's a drama that's happening beyond what you see if you're there, that God is acting to redeem lost sinners by sending his son. And then the text says, he made him, God made him, who knew no sin. My second word, not only does God's God's love initiates, but God's love also, fancy word, propitiates. That God's word satisfies his just wrath 
for our sin. It says, he made him who knew no sin. God is taking the sinless one and putting him in a place of sinners. And so if you ask the question, what in the world is the Holy Son of God doing hanging on a cruel Roman cross? And the answer is, God loves you. That God loved you and sent his son, and his son loves the father and said, yes, I will go. He is no victim. I love the scene. I love the scene in the Passion of Christ, although it's not biblical, but I love it. Jesus is carrying the cross down the Via Della Rosa, and he collapses and he falls, and Mary, with all of her motherly love, comes running up. And she falls down, and she's, she's mourning for her son, and he's in agony, and she wants to help him, and she feels awful, and she looks at him, and he looks back at her and says, I'm making all things new. I'm no victim. I'm making all things new. I'm going to swallow death. It's like the father in a car, and a bee comes into the car, and the kids are going crazy, like, Dad, oh, there's a bee in the car. And the dad reaches up and grabs the bee. And then he opens up his hand. And the kids are screaming, oh, dad, the bee. And the dad opens up his hand and says, calm down. I took the stinger. The bee is now harmless. Jesus took the venomous bite of the serpent on the cross. So that he who knew no sin takes sin for holy, for, before holy God and he satisfies all the wrath of God for us. He hung on the cross, so he drank every drop of the wrath of God for every one of our sins. So God's love initiates. God's love propitiates. God's love substitutes. He did it on by our behalf. That God sent the hero, and he wasn't wearing a Superman tights with no red cape. That Jesus comes into the world, and he comes in to rescue sinners. So he comes on our behalf as a substitute for us. And then lastly, God's love not only initiates and propitiates and substitutes, but God's love finally, it justifies. God made him who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. Justification that God looks at us, at us just as if, justified, just as if we have done everything that Jesus did. His life for us. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. And when you compile that all up, that God's love initiates it, propitiates it, substitutes it, justifies, then it restores and it reconciles. That God can take us alienated from him, himself because he's holy in our sin. And he can picture for us what he was going to do in his marriage motif and his sacrificial, sacrificial picture in Genesis 22. And then he ultimately does it by giving the gift of his son. And he reconciles us back to himself. What amazing love. Uh, what amazing grace that God has poured out in us. And what kind of love is that? You know, God has given us love for one reason, so that we now can turn around and love others. That God has invested this love in us and loved us so that it pours out in our heart. So you can go home. You can be the leader who loves your wife. 
You can be the leader who loves your kids. You can be the leader who loves your church, who steps in with a ministry of reconciliation to restore and, and, and not be the one whose petty and small is all about me and fighting and dividing. That we can be the leaders in this day and hour where everybody's divided over everything. And we can be the ones who walk in with love and bring reconciliation, restoration, because God loved us that way. Amen, brothers. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.